Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, or a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson, and today I think our guest is in a unique position where he's able to tell not only his story, He's also able to tell the stories of a lot of people that he's come in contact with after working with the uh, folks that have been living out on Skid Row in the Los Angeles community for the past 25 years. He's got an interesting story to tell. Before we bring him in, we bring in our host for the episode, Mr. Mike Warren. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you today, sir? I am lovely. I have to tell you, I've been really excited about our guest today. He's been very gracious with us as we've been trying to get this thing scheduled. I've been looking forward to this because I follow this guy on LinkedIn and I followed him for quite a while. And every single time a new post comes out, I learn something. And those are the type of people that I like to be around, that I like to associate with. And to get the opportunity to talk to him today, I cannot tell you how excited I am. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of research, reading some articles and everything I would read, the more I would read read. I'm like, I like the, his way of thinking. I like where he frames things. I really got into it. I look at all these things as a learning experience, but I think today's going to be especially fruitful in that area. So what can you tell us about uh, our guest today? Our guest today is an officer in California with over 25 years experience. He has uh, helped work with those living on the Los Angeles community of Skid Row for many, many years. From outreach and mentor programs to education and safety seminars, Officer Dion Joseph has spent a majority of his career working with those living on the streets, looking past the labels often given to those individuals in order to see the human being who desperately needs help. He is the perfect example of find a solution instead of staring at the problem. We are humbled to welcome Officer Dion Joseph to Between the Lines. Thanks for making time for us today. Oh, I appreciate it. Glad to be here. And I like how you frame that. <laughs> well, I got it just by reading up on you, man. Yeah, yeah. It's like my favorite line, paralysis through analysis. I don't believe in that. I believe in getting things done. So, yeah. <laughs> I will tell you that I, I meant what I said because I, I've followed you for quite a while now. And, and for those who don't know me, I, I love LinkedIn. I think it's a great place to connect with people and also also to read up this gentleman right here he's like way up there uh, he's got over 28,000 connections followers he has a tremendous outreach but you know what though Brent he does it for good and, and he does it in, in a way that's not self-serving so uh, let's go ahead and let's get started uh, and this is a question I ask just about everybody that comes on the podcast how is it that you came to be in this professional field? What brought you here? Well, the honest story, and I know a lot of people are going to like this, is I hated cops since I was a young man. <laughs> <laughs> like many young African-Americans growing up in the Los Angeles area, we were kind of indoctrinated to hate and fear law enforcement. My favorite rap groups were NWA, Public Enemy, KRS-One. Yes, after police was bumping in my 89 Nissan Sentra. And, you know, and, and really, and, a couple, and I was racially profiled a couple of times. We can't pretend that doesn't exist. And then comes the Rodney King incident. And that solidified my view that the police were my enemy without ever having any meaningful contacts with law enforcement. But what ended up happening is my family, where I come from a proud family, a middle class, successful. My dad was a successful businessman. He started a restaurant and he bought the first black owned shopping center in uh, the city of Long Beach. And we were working in there. And then after the riots, things kind of went downhill from there. Uh, nobody wanted to hire black contractors. So basically I was out of a job for about Oh, four or five months. So I tried everything. I put my name in so many hats. 
but nobody would hire me. And then one of my friends and an uncle who was a law enforcement officer as well said, hey, you know, we're looking for African-Americans on the police force. Why don't you join? I was like, that one? Oh, heck no. The Rodney King Police Department? <laughs> I don't know. That's that crap I don't do right there, you know, and uh, but still nobody called. But they said, put your name in a hat and see what happens. So I met this beautiful woman, uh, my beautiful wife, who you guys have been in contact with. It's just so wonderful. And I said, I want to be a good provider for her. So I'm going to join it. I'm going to try it for about three years. And uh, so I got the notification that I was uh, accepted. Three of my friends stopped talking to me and walked out of my restaurant. Uh, and they said, you aren't the N word anymore. And uh, I was like, wow, I never really was one. You know, I'm a proud African male. <laughs> but so there I was on the black line and about 90% of everything that I was told about policing and, and, and the academy was not true. They were, they told me that I was going to be taught to hate my own race. They told me that I was going to be taught that the black people, black people were our enemies and all this crazy stuff. And none of that. As a matter of fact, it was the opposite. They were stressing integrity. They were stressing, you know, human relations. And I was able to talk freely about the black experience with the police departments, because not only did my family have a bad experience with them, so did my wife, who was on the whole another extreme. You know, we learn more human relations in Spanish than how to keep our heads from being blown off in the street. That's how uh, how it was in the academy. Then I end up hitting the streets and I fell in love with the job uh, one night where we had to rescue a woman from a domestic violence incident. There was no racism there. There was no, you know, the police are out to get you there. We were there to save a woman from her husband who was trying to kill her, who was lying in wait to kill her. And that woke me up on top of working with people from all walks of life. If you don't mind, I'll tell this real quick. White officers, black officers, gay officers, Jewish officers. It was just amazing. And this one white officer who was the stereotype of what a racist cop should look like, that's what I was indoctrinated to believe. He ended up being my training officer when they were about to fire me. And, uh, and I'm thinking, oh my God, this guy's arrested 2,300 people in one of the most violent areas of Venice Beach. I'm going to get fired. And plus, I'm working with a possible racist. That's what I kept telling myself. <laughs> but I couldn't believe that I'm driving through Oakwood, a black community at that time, and black people were hanging out of their windows calling this man's name. I love you, Snowden. Hey, God bless you, Snowden. Hey, man, good to see you. How's your family, Snowden? And I'm sitting here like, what? Is this guy so corrupt that he's got these people so scared that they're saying hi to him? So he saw the look on my face and I'll never forget it. He pulls the car over and says, looks like you got something on your mind, young man. I said, you arrested half of the people in this community, but these people love you. What is going on, sir? And he says, Dion, this is Oakwood. The people here know they need the police in the community or they're going to die. Listen, whether they're being arrested by us, whether we are counseling them, whether they're we're arrested, no matter what we're doing, we must treat them with dignity and respect. And as long as you're working with me, young man, you will treat everyone, whether it's a drug dealer, whether it's a grandmother, with dignity and respect. And that didn't change my life because that's kind of who I was in the first place. But it affirmed, you know, things that I've been taught. And it just affirmed who I was. And I said, this is the kind of cop I want to be. And uh, then I ended up in Skid Row. And that was a whole <laughs> life-changing event. But yeah, that's where I found my calling in Skid Row after Venice Beach. You talk there about treating people with dignity and respect. And that, that was a, uh, something I had read about your dad. You, you had talked about how your dad 
would hire ex-cons to work for him, but he didn't tell you. And what was the reason he didn't tell you uh, that they were ex-cons? He knew I was applying for the uh, police academy. And uh, one of the questions they asked is, have you ever been affiliated with a felon? And I was like, hell no, I, I can't stand drug dealers. That's what I, so I basically I lied to my investigator. <laughs> so when, when my dad says, well, son, that's not entirely true. I was like, what do you mean, dad? This could get me ruined, right? And he goes, no. He said, you remember Cowboy? I said, yeah, the carpenter? He says, yeah, he was convicted of murder 12 years ago. I said, what? He said, you know, Andre, what? The guy I dig ditches with? He says, yeah, yeah, he's an ex-drug dealer. I was like, yo, what? <laughs> my mind is what they call it. <laughs> I said, damn, Dad. <laughs> he says, Dion, here's my thing. If a man wants a second chance and demonstrates that he's serious about it, I'm going to give him a second chance. These men weren't born convicts. They want to work and they want to show me that they want to feed their families. They're more than willing to work with me. Now, if they mess up, I'm going to fire them off the bat. You know, because like my dad believed not only in got hand up, he didn't believe in handouts. He believed in hands up, helping people get a hand up. But if you screwed up, you know, if you if you betrayed him, oh, he would cut you off in the middle because he also believed in accountability. So he gave me that sense of balance. And he never called his employees his employee. He always called them his friends. You'll never hear me call a person in Skid Row a bum, a hobo, a transient. You'll never hear me use those terms. You'll never hear me say they're crackheads or anything else like that. I will always call them my friends. And that's because of my father. My heart came from my mother, who basically, they raised 41 foster children in their 47-year marriage on top of their four kids and three grandchildren. So that's a lot of love that I had to share, but I had no resentment because I had to, I got to watch, I have a front row seat to watch my parents love children, broken children back to health, molested children, uh, neglected children, physically abused with handicapped children. I have a nephew and niece who are handicapped, you know, who doctors said they'd be vegetables. And I watched them love people back to health. Then after that, she would feed the homeless every weekend for 10 years, uh, missing birthdays, miss, almost missed my wedding to feed the homeless. And once again, I loved how she worked with the homeless because it wasn't just here's a meal. She tried to really find out who they were and what they needed. And when she found out they had families, she helped whole families of people. So what I discovered, you know, when I became a police officer, although that is a walk, I did not want to walk because I we had a lot of people turn their backs on my parents or use my parents. And I said, I, I love you guys. I can't be like you. But then after my first few months in Skid Row, I realized that you can't change who you are. It's in my DNA and it stayed with me. And I'm exactly like my parents. I can't say no to helping somebody. So it's a, it's a beautiful life. I've never met your parents, but based upon what I've read of you and what I've heard from you already, it's a good thing to be like your parents. I agree. Yeah. They had to have been heck of a good people. But but I, I have to be honest with you here for a second, if I could, because uh, Brent and I, we were actually talking about this and we were getting ready for this episode. You're looking at a guy that for the longest time, I was raised in a very conservative, very law and order type of uh, belief. You know, with somebody breaks the law, man, we throw the book at him. You know what I mean? And I, I was teaching a college class several years ago, and there was one line in the textbook, man, it just hit me. What it said was, when it comes to people's criminal history, how long are we as a society going to make them wear that millstone around their neck? Because those people that you were talking about, that they want that second chance, they recognize that they made a mistake and they want to do better. They want to be productive, yet oftentimes they're prevented from getting that second chance because of something they did 10 years ago or 15 years ago, or even in some case, 25 or 30 years ago. 
How do we handle that? How do we address that? Because granted, there are people who don't want a second chance, but there's a lot of people who do. So how do we do that? How do we make that happen? Well, there has to be a balance. What I noticed where we fail policy wise, whether it's the ultra progressives or the ultra conservative, where we fail, it's either one or the other and it has to go to the extremes. That's where we fail. You need a balance of both. Yes, I believe people can change. I'm a witness to seeing people change just by giving them a hand up, guiding them in the right direction. Uh, and basically, but rehabilitation in the end is 100% up to the individual. You can give them all the programs you want. Just like they say, if you uh, give everybody housing, you're gonna end homelessness. That's not true. That is false on its face. Because look, we know the equation is uh, house, plus homeless person equals an end to homelessness, right? What we forget is that there are variables. When you throw that variable in, it always changes the uh, equation, whether for the positive or the negative. And when you don't throw in the factor of addiction, two thirds of the individuals that we see in the street, two thirds are addicted to drugs or alcohol or mental illness. And when you try to bury that or bury that fact, you miss the mark because now you're going to house somebody who still has a fresh needle in their arm and think, yay, I house somebody, but then the person overdoses and dies in their hotel room or is still getting offered dope by the dope man who knows they're in that hotel. This is what I see in Skidder all the time. So there needs to be accountability. I believe in that. But you can have accountability through enforcement. And this is what it looks like to me because I saw it work successfully from 2005 to 2011. We had an initiative called the Safer Cities Initiative, and the focus was Skid Row. And the reason why is, well, here's some stats for you. Uh, in 2005, 95 human beings died from non-homicidal deaths in Skid Row in a 50-block radius. Skid Row is a tight 50-block radius. You ever been to D.C.? The blocks look like that. They're very, very tight. And that's a lot of people to die from non-homicidal deaths. 18 of those individuals died in the streets. Sadly, beautiful human beings, somebody's loved one died in the streets like an animal uh, because of the environment, because of the hands-off approach. Let's let them do what they want to do. They shouldn't be criminalized for using drugs. I hate that term, criminalize. It's, it's a stupid term. <laughs> but anyway, I can't criminalize you. You can only criminalize yourself. Three years prior to that, in a 50-block radius, we had 54 human beings get murdered. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, in my division, 54 human beings in one year, that's pretty high for a 4.5 mile radius. But in that 50 block radius, guess what? That area accounted for 75% of all those murders. You're talking about 35 people who were shot, stabbed, beaten because of a hands-off approach. So what we did with the Safer Cities Initiative, we said, look, we're going to do a three-prong approach. It's going to be enforcement, enhancement, and outreach. Let me explain because I know a lot of college students don't get this information. You know, they get a one-sided view of law enforcement. Yes, the focus was enforcement. We wanted zero tolerance because for so many years, Skid Row got to do whatever it wanted to do, and it resulted in the statistics I gave you, people dying. So yes, we enforced everything from jaywalking to murder, and guess what? It actually worked. People started obeying the law because guess what? The police were enforcing the law. But if we would have just went on enforcement alone, enforcement alone would have failed. Because after a while, Cops get burned out. People get tired of doing the same thing. You know, it's going to fail. So what we added was also enhancements. We also learned that Skid Row needed attention. They had no streetlights. Imagine being a woman in Skid Row in 2005 with no streetlights. Uh, women make up two thirds of the Skid Row population. I'm sorry, they make up 40% of the Skid Row population, but two thirds of them have been victims of sexual assault twice. Okay. You can't say you care about protecting homeless women, but you're okay with creating an environment or allowing an environment that puts them in constant danger. Okay. 
That's what I mean by balance. So what we did was we put up street lights, trim trees, put in crosswalks, slats in the sidewalk for the handicap so they didn't have to roll in the streets, right? Because that's wrong, right? That's an ADA violation. We made sure the tents were down and off the sidewalk from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. We didn't say you couldn't camp out there, but you have to do it after nine o'clock. Well, at six in the morning, you got to pack up and you got to do something better with yourself than destroy yourself on the sidewalk and sell drugs and hide guns and human trafficking. And it actually works. So enhancements work. But the third and most important prong is what we're talking about right now. That second chance, outreach. We use our enforcement to guide people to resources that we knew they wouldn't go to. It was called the uh, SOS program, Streets of Services. And what happened was we had a great collaboration with service providers in the area and we brought them into our station. And everyone we arrested for a minor violation, they didn't kill anybody, you know, it wasn't serious, but we knew addiction, mental health, or chronic homelessness was driving them to get those crimes. We would put them in a 21-day program if they signed up for it. And if they completed the program, guess what, folks? Listen up, college students, you didn't hear about this. We dropped the charges. We dropped the charges. In 2009, 2,225 individuals signed up for the program. Now, of course, all of them didn't complete it. About 30% of them did. The rest signed it and went out and used drugs. Well, guess what happened with them? Warrants went out for the arrest. We brought them back and we tried it again and again and again. And what we noticed was Skid Row was becoming cleaner and safer. Okay, so now here's the data from that. I remember I told you in 2005, 93 human beings died, right? Non-homicidal deaths. Okay, in 2000 and Nine, we took a look at our stats. 63 people died from non-homicidal deaths. Guess how many people we found dead in the streets? Only five. You know why? Because if I can see them, I can save them. If the fire department can see them, they can save them. If mental health can see them, they can rescue them. And it actually worked. We talked about homicides, right? Well, hell, just one year after our initiative, remember I told you in 2002, we had uh, 35 homicides in Skid Row. Guess how many people died in Skid Row in 2009? How many? Three people died. That's amazing. Three people died. So not only did we reduce crime by 40%, we reduced death, we reduced overdose, we reduced human trafficking. I mean, the drug dealers were so stressed out, they raised the price of weed and cocaine. That's how stressed out they were. And that's a beautiful thing. It's called crime control, not crime stop. You'll always hear propaganda say, but you see, crime control didn't work. That is absolutely false. Crime control was responsible for 13 years of crime reduction. When you injured crime control, guess what happened? Crimes up everywhere across America. And let me see what, show you what it looks like where I work. So in 2011, two lawsuits were brought forth that hamstringed the police in being able to deal with quality of life issues. On top of that, Prop 47, 57, and all these horrible laws were passed that basically gave the criminal element a leg up to do whatever they want. They promised rehabilitation. None of that came to fruition. It's all about letting these guys do what they want to do. So we looked at our stats in 2011. Guess how many people died from non-homicidal deaths in 2011? How many? 123 people died from non-homicidal. That's more than what happened in 2005. Guess how many people we found dead in the streets? Intense that we couldn't take down anymore. 15. So we were reverting backwards. What I always tell people is, look, I know what law enforcement does is not sexy. If you want sexy, call the fire department. They're handsome guys. <laughs> they work out all day. You know, they look good on calendars. <laughs> I'll just say, no, God bless the fire department. Fire station, I know I love you guys. You guys are amazing. But no, no, really, if you want pretty, go see the fire department. Police, our job is to go deal with the fallout of our society or systemic failures. And when I talk about systemic failures, I'm not talking about racism. The real systemic failures is the actual system itself. And let me explain. 
The real systemic failures are our political leaders who buy into these false narratives about crime, about policing. They fell for the BLM narrative. They fell for the Antifa narrative, and they pander to those groups, okay? But look, we've always had failures with the mental health system, right? What is the solution, quote unquote, helping the mentally ill post 19 to 1970, right? Let's close down the asylums and hospitals, which I agree were inhumane, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You fix the bathwater so you can bathe the baby. But nope, let's just throw it away, right? Some of those individuals fell into the loving arms of family who did their best to help them, but that is a challenge. It's not easy, believe me, I know. Others ended up in places like Skid Row, where they were routinely victimized or became suspects in crime because when they got to Skid Row, they threw away their prescribed medication, they just threw it away because it made them feel lethargic or they sold it for money so they can score the more hard narcotics, the Schedule 1 like cocaine, methamphetamine, spice, and yes, even marijuana. For you marijuana advocates out there, I'm not trying to tell you marijuana is going to kill you, but for you and me, it's not going to have that adverse effect. Someone who's paranoid schizophrenic and off of their medication, it's disaster. So you're hearing a police officer who's going to tell you this. Guess what? Being mentally ill is not a crime. We know that. It's not a crime to be bipolar. It's not a crime to be paranoid schizophrenic. It's not a crime to be depressed. We know that. Hell, that's easy for me. You know, I can deal with it when it was just that. That's easy. When those things meet crack cocaine, methamphetamine, spice, marijuana, and other hard drugs, that's when they become a police problem, when they start hurting other people, jumping in front of city buses. And what did they give us to solve the problem, right? What tools did they give police, right? A 72-hour hold, right? Which isn't even 72 hours anymore. We handcuff them, take them to a hot contract hospital. We just saw them jump in front of a bus and they do what's called straightening up the subject. They go in there and they tell the doctor, how are you feeling today? And they'll straighten up, why? Because they're not just mentally ill, they're dual diagnosed. They want that crack, they want that meth. So to tell the doctors they're fine and the doctor goes, looks good to me and plus we're crowded, we're gonna let you out in about six hours. So they sprinkle pills on, kick them back out and the cycle continues. Who's failing the mentally ill? Is it the police? Because we're the ones who rescue them every day. We're the ones. Or is it the system? And that's what I need people to start thinking about and stop listening to these extreme narratives about policing. I love talking to college students, I really do. And I remember there was this college professor who challenged me on my views. He would follow me on Facebook. And he was just so angry that I was just saying these, the truth. <laughs> <laughs> he was so angry that I was thinking that he brought me in to speak to his college student. And sure enough, before I got there, he kind of greased the wheels a little bit. I had to come argue from a deficit, right? Because he already told the kids that I was this big, bad, muscle-bound, mean cop who wanted to criminalize everybody, right? So when I sat down, I heard him speak and introduce me. I was like, wow. I said, sir, you need to stop right now. You are a guru, right? You've had to work with individuals who are on the spectrum of mental illness one-on-one, right? He said, yes. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Right in front of your students. Let's say you're out on San Pedro and Six in the heart of Skid Row, and you're handing out hygiene kits or hot dogs or whatever you want to give out. And you saw one of your former clients walking in the middle of the street, grinding his teeth, hair matted, pupils dilated, fist balled up, running in front of city buses, challenging anybody to come within five feet of them, or they're going to get their ass whooped. Now you're the professional. Can you tell me, based on your uh, uh, observations, knowing that he's under the influence of something else other than his crisis, what would you do to calm him down, sir? And I couldn't believe he had an honest moment. He scratched his face and well, I guess I'd call the police. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think we're gonna do? And yes, we have training, but there's no guarantees because here's the difference. Someone who's just paranoid schizophrenic, fine. Someone paranoid schizophrenic on meth, 
there's a chemical buffer now between you and the crisis. And even the most well-trained mental health clinician or cop will not be able to save that person unless they go hands-on. And there, there are rare times you get into uses of force, but that's not because of a lack of a training or a lack of compassion. It's that chemical. And when you guys understand that, that's when we'll understand that the, the real root cause of all of these issues right now that we're facing on the street level is addiction, which infuriates me as to why we have an open border with fentanyl coming, methamphetamines, when we have uh, laced up marijuana, all these things coming across our borders and no one's doing it. It infuriates me when we want to decriminalize drugs. Hey, they basically decriminalized marijuana. And guess what happened? Marijuana sales, illegal marijuana sales increased three by three times. This is a fact. You can research this. So if you legalize drugs, that's not going to help either. So what's the answer? Allow enforcement, mix it in with enhancements and services. Make sure you bring back medicine. I don't want to send a crack addict to prison for three years. That's ridiculous. What I would like to see is him dry out for about 30 days in a jail cell, maybe, or create a place that's more humane in your logical opinion. Let them dry out connect them to services, okay? Get them in mandatory treatment. I found that to be more helpful than releasing people in the street. I, I love what you're saying, because if you, if you go back to after Ferguson, you know, uh, President Obama put together the president's task force on policing in the 21st century, and they go out to a lot of fanfare and everything. But when they came back with their final report, there was very little coverage because what they found was that by and large, law enforcement were doing the best that they could. Where they found the shortcomings were, were on the court side of things and on the mental health side of things and on the addiction treatment side of things. I don't know about you, but enforcement is one of those tools of last resort. But a lot of times as a law enforcement officer, that's the only tool we have available to us to address the issue right now. I recognize right. it's not the right. long term solution, but it's all I got right now. I mean, I'm limited in my scope of powers. When you were talking about these reductions in crime, that's meaningful. When you're talking about a 40 percent reduction in overall crime, that is meaningful. People notice that and yeah. it had to have felt somewhat safer down in that area, not just for you, but for the people that you were serving. Even the activists who hate our guts there, who tried to paint us as a, as a draconian effort to get rid of homeless people from down, even they had to admit in their own publications that things were safer, but it's racist. I'm like, oh, come on. We can't win. Right. <laughs> Okay, well, here's, here's the effect of our racism, quote unquote. Uh, you had more people graduating from drug programs, more people reuniting with their families and loved ones, the admissions and shelters with drug programs stating less guns, less drugs, the hotels were saying less loan sharks and gang members were getting into our hotels because of what we were doing. And the ultimate goal, and I say this, I'll say this, matter of fact, I want this on my tombstone. My job there, along with my fellow officers, because it wasn't just me, is to create an environment conducive to change so that the influence of the service providers there, the missions, the drug program, the housing program, can have a stronger influence over the community than the criminal element. That's it. That's all. When we separated the wolves from the sheep, we saw the sheep getting better. We saw the community trying to take the community back, painting murals. They had a, a cleanup brigade that cleaned up the streets better than the city did. Basketball leads, all these things, these beautiful things. And we gave the power back to the community, the real community members, not the seven or 800 gang members that come from South LA, Long Beach, Watts, Compton to prey on the people, but the real community who were there to do positive things. We actually gave them their community back. And you can 
walk down the street, you could walk your dog. It was a beautiful time, a time that said, everybody said from our far left detractors, it can never happen. Even cops, Joseph, you're crazy. It's never going to get cleaned up. A few cops are like, no, it's not going to happen. It actually happened. And what people want to do nowadays is they know we're in a society, or what I call the microwave society, where people's attention spans are that, that fast. They know that a lot of the younger generation don't remember those days. But if they can erase that time, they can continue to sell the lie that enforcement doesn't work or we can't arrest our way. And I agree, we can't arrest our way out of it, but we can use arrest to get people to services because that's the goal of the arrest. Absolutely. Get them to where they need to be. At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy. Because you deserve more. To me, it's very similar to it's not are they mentally ill or are they addicted or are they criminal? We can use yeah. the word and in there, too. They can be mentally ill and addicted and still be committing criminal activity. And it's right. just like the enforcement shouldn't be enforcement or services. It should be enforcement and service. Yes. I, I remember this was probably back uh, in the mid 2000s. I got to go to Honolulu on a homicide investigation. I mean, it was fantastic. An earlier episode, we had my partner, Victor Laurie on and, and we got to go there, but they, they assigned a detective to us. I never knew that Honolulu had the homeless issue that it did. And I was asking, how does that happen? I mean, I know it's expensive here, but he says, well, for a long time during the 90s, the way that large cities along the West Coast would deal with their homeless problem was that they would buy an $800 plane ticket for the homeless person and send them to Hawaii because it was cheaper in the long run to buy that $800 plane ticket than it was to try to keep dealing with them over and over. And they figured humanely that at least they wouldn't freeze to death in Honolulu. But we didn't address the homeless problem because the person's still homeless. We just shifted it. And that's why it has to be enforcement and services, because that's what changes them. And you'll find this policy, anytime you hear a city, we have ended our homeless problem. No, they didn't, they put them on a bus. We call it one-way therapy, where you put them on a Greyhound bus, one-way tickets to California. We've had that going on for a long time, but now that's been intensified because now we have a governor who says, bring your homeless to us <laughs> in California. Uh, let me tell you guys, it's a crap show out here. It's a rolling dumpster <laughs> fire to drive for us. I don't care what you hear. I know our governor's putting ads out all over the country. Don't listen to them. <laughs> but what happens is, so when these other countries and uh, not, other states and other cities hear this, they ship their problems to us. So we're never, ever going to solve the homeless crisis. It's not designed. The, the We call it the homeless industrial complex here. The programs and all the money is not designed to actually end homelessness. It's designed to keep it going and exacerbate it. Because who's making money? You got corrupt city council members. You got uh, advocates who are on these boards who are getting paid, you know, to give advice. And what advice do you think they're going to give? Oh, yeah. No, 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 no enforcement. No, that, that, that's not going to work. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. No criminalization. That's not going to work. So, that, of course, they're going to give that advice because they have to justify 
their existence. So just understand that there are people who don't truly want to end homelessness. If you're not looking at a changing the law as it relates to mental health, it shouldn't be 72 hours. And I've said this before, it should be six weeks. And why six weeks? And just let me know if this makes sense to the listeners out there, because this is not left or right. This is not conservative or liberal. Okay. This is common sense. See if this is common sense. Here's why, especially for somebody who's been homeless on the street, haven't been taking their medication and dual diagnosis. First reason, A, you got to detox them first. They're not going to hear you unless you clean them out. All right. Give them time to get that stuff out their system. Number two, medicate them. It takes on average six to eight weeks for the average person who hasn't been taking their medication who's in crisis to actually become stabilized from the positive attributes of their medication. Okay. And thirdly, that's when our politicians need to be working behind the scene, put down your finger pointing, I don't care if you're left or right, and let's streamline the process of conservatorships to get a lot of these individuals connected to their loved ones who can help provide them with support, housing, or some means of help. Let's say after six weeks, you can't get them connected and you have to release them, which they have autonomy, they have their constitutional rights to be free. Guess what's gonna happen? Because they've had a steady regimen of taking their medication, they're not gonna fall off the wagon as fast. So we may not be dealing with them again for another six months as opposed to the next day. But at least for six weeks, we'll have stabilized them because you're not going to release a heart patient from triple bypass surgery from the hospital the next day, are you? Right. No. So why are we doing this to mental health patients? It's inhumane. The other thing we need to do is we need to stop demonizing or engaging in demagoguery against the justice system. The justice system is not perfect. I don't believe in the systemic racism argument. Maybe if it's the 20s, 30s, 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe you got me dead bang. I won't argue with you. But currently in uh, departments where they're more diverse, you have judges, jurors who are more diverse, I understand it. the problem is not the system. Now, are there individuals within the system that disappoint us all? Absolutely. But no, the system is not against you. The system just needs to be improved. Okay. But it's not systemic racism that's failing us. Uh, because when we buy into the argument, guess what happens? Law enforcement gets handcuffs. And now we're seeing what we're seeing rampant crime. And I said it was going to happen. Just call me Swami Joseph. I said it was going to happen. There were a couple initiatives that you were a part of. And to be very, very honest with you, when, when I was reading about them, it got to me. And one of the ones that, that you were involved in is the just like you. And, and oh, yeah. goodness, man. When I was, re- I just got goosebumps. When I was reading about that, thinking about kids in this situation, how difficult is that for you to have to deal? I mean, it's bad enough. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it's heartbreaking seeing adults. But man, when you see kids in that situation, what does that do to you? It was the most heartbreaking thing I had ever seen in my life when I first got to Skid Row. Uh, first, the kids used to be in the tent, but thank God for a wonderful human being named Andy Bales, who is the CEO of the Union Rescue Mission. You guys got to talk to that man. He's a he's an angel. He's the real angel. He gave me a tour of the mission, and I saw kids. I saw children there. And of course, my heart broke, and I said, I want to do something. So I want to meet with the kids, and I want to go do the old glad hand thing. Hey, little Billy, what do you want to be when you grow up? Here's a sticker. Here's a baseball card. Here's a challenge coin, right? And I asked the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I kids and one kid was like, I want to be a police officer. Thanks. And another kid was like, I want to be a fireman. Forget you, kid. All right, next kid, I'll just play. <laughs> I'll just play. I love the fire department. Uh, I want to be in the military. I want to be this and that. And I was like, great. And there was this 12 year old uh, young lady, beautiful, beautiful African American young lady. And she was looking out the window and she wasn't paying attention to what I was saying. And I was like, hey, young lady, the party's over here. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said this exactly. Well, I'm probably going to be like these crackheads I see out here having sex on the sidewalk. If you guys don't get me and my family out of here. 
and my heart split in two. I couldn't say, I couldn't do the dance anymore. I told my partners to handle it. I walked out crying. I didn't want them to see me cry. Later, I went to the station and said, what could I do to show them that there are people who are just like them? Ding, 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 ding. The idea popped in my head. Find people who are either from Skid Row or in foster care, whose parents or who had a horrible life. Find people who became successes in spite of and put them in front of these kids. So I created the Just Like You program and thank you to the Union Rescue Mission for letting me hold the first one there. I brought a lawyer who was in foster care. She's now a judge. Brought a uh, man who I found in a dumpster in Skid Row, covered in scabies, who went on to become the director of a major hotel chain. <laughs> I brought him back. You know, <laughs> I brought all these people back to show these kids that it doesn't matter where you started, it's where you finish. And there's no glass ceiling over your head if, if you put the effort in. And I brought in people who shattered glass ceilings and it changed these kids' lives. And I love what happened was because the program spread via word of mouth and it spread to South Los Angeles. And I ended up doing it at a, uh, a school for juvenile delinquents. These are what we call 602s. Kids who are already on probation, they've already been convicted for violent crimes. And I'm thinking, I walk in there, it was like a prison yard. You had the Hispanic kids lifting weights on the other side, you had the black kids. And I'm like, what am I doing here? I can't help these kids, right? <laughs> but and sure enough, they looked at me like I was coming to arrest them. <laughs> so we go into the class and the first three words out of my mouth was, I love you guys. And of course they laughed. He's like, do you love us? Yeah, we heard you guys are racist. And I just said, no, no, no. I'm not here to juice you for information. The first meeting, I took my badge off and I took off my bulletproof vest and I let them see just my skin. I said, I'm you. I'm you. And I'm here to tell you I love you. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to juice you for information. And I went into a speech about you were not designed to fail. And these kids were like all ears. The teacher said I was the first human being. Maybe it was the muscles. <laughs> I was the first human being to have their attention for 45 minutes. And I promised those kids I would come once a month and I brought ex-gang members, ex-convicts who were running their businesses. And they said after six months, and I gave them a Skid Row tour, which completely changed half of their lives. They said after six months of me coming once a month, they sent me a card and a plaque saying, Joseph, you helped our kids' grade levels come up to grade levels. Dang. Which blows my mind as to why now they don't want cops in school, they don't want cops in parks. This is insane. So that was a blessing. I helped a lot of children and it was great. Then the pandemic hit and I took care of that. <laughs> and then another program I was equally proud of was Ladies Night. The Ladies Night was a program that was birthed in my heart in 1999 when I was an undercover vice investigator in Skid Row. Yeah, I would get to put in a white tank top, some jailhouse blues, uh, flip-flops, a band-aid on my face, and a jailhouse wristband and mob down the street trying to get some uh, sex workers, right? So uh, I'll never forget there was this one worker I've been trying to get. That one uniform was a worker, so I said, you know, I'm going to dress up as a preacher today. So I put a little preacher's uniform on, you know, have a little glasses. Girl, let me lay hands on you, right? And, <laughs> and she almost fell for it, too. She looked in the car. She said, what do you want? I said, I looked at her. Her eye was swollen shut. Lip was split. Skirt was ripped. And she was bleeding. I saw blood, and I'm sorry for being graphic, blood and semen uh, dripping from between her legs. Clearly, she had been a victim of sexual assault. And I broke cover. I said, lady, I'm not a pastor. She said, figures. I pulled out of bed. I said, ma'am, I'm not trying to arrest you. I want to know who did that to you. And she told me to go pound sand. Uh, she's going to get arrested if she tells me. And I'm like, no, you're not. And she walked away. The same man that violated her violated several other women that week. And it, it broke my heart that I couldn't get her justice and other women were victimized. So I couldn't do anything about it back then. I was just an undercover cop. I didn't know anything about services. Then I became the senior lead officer in 2005. And I kept hearing ladies over and over again telling me, Joseph, when I go to 
sleep at night, guys sexually violate me. Or when I walk by, guys stick their hand in my crotch. Or I wake up with semen on my on my, on my back. Well, you know, and these are horrible, horrible things that were happening to women. So in 2008, I said, enough. I'm going to create a program called Ladies Night. Now, I had already developed a great rapport and relationship with the community, particularly the women there. SRO, a uh, great corporation, they allowed me to use their main center. Big building. I walk in, I set out about 50 chairs, but I only expected 15 women to show up to the first ladies' night. By the grace of God, based on the relationships that he helped me build, 175 homeless women came to the first wow. ladies' night. And it's documented that this happened. Like even our detractors couldn't believe that I had this much influence in the community. And during that presentation, I was able to tell them, I don't care if you're a prostitute on parole, on the pipe or swinging from a pole or undocumented, we are here to serve you. We will not criminalize you if you were a sex worker and you got raped. We won't criminalize you if you were smoking drugs when you get raped. Whoever's telling you that is a lie. And I love that because some of my detractors were in the room and they got up and was like, oops, because they were the ones telling me this, right? Yep. Don't go to the police if you get raped. And we even taught them self-defense, not enough to kick my butt, but enough to add seconds to their life should something uh, happen to them. And those ladies, here's the magic of that. Two years later, we had a serial taxi cab rapist driving through Skid Row and he would pick up girls and he would tell them these very same things. If you go to the police, I'll tell them you were selling your body. If you go to the police, I'll tell them that yeah, I, you smoke drugs with me and they're not going to believe you. Three of the women that attended ladies' nights were victims of his crime. Two years after I did it, but because of ladies' night, they came forward. And the great thing about that, and uh, <laughs> I can't wait to volume two of my book, <laughs> was when they were testifying, I was on a day off. I was at my house drinking a strawberry smoothie in my Superman underwear, watching, I think, Family Feud or something like that. And uh, I was with Jerry Springer, I don't know. <laughs> Either way, I get a phone call, Joseph, you need to come to court. I said, I'm on a day off. I said, no, Joseph, these women will not testify unless the angel shows up. I was like, who's that? Uh, that's you, idiot. Put some clothes on. <laughs> Come to the courthouse. So I went to the courthouse, and sure enough, three of the victims jumped into my arms and says, we can do it now. And I stayed in that courtroom, and each of those ladies heroically touched. And we put that man away for the rest of his life. So this is the impact police officers can make if you open your mind and stop making us look like warriors and all these horrible names that you call us. We want to care, but here's a secret, folks. When an area is violent, say, picture Chicago, West Baltimore, South side of Chicago, LA right now. Police officers don't have time to show you who they are right here. We only have time to show what we do. That's not because of a, an angst or a disconnect. Things are happening fast. But when your community is safe, when you allow them to make it safe, that's when you'll find that police officers are able to show you who they are. And because we made Skid Row safe, I was able to show that community and other officers as well that we cared about them. We did. That's why we're here. Who volunteers to work here? in Skid Row and see death every day and, and risk getting stuck by a needle and, and risk catching hepatitis, herpes, uh, monkeypox and everything else. Who does that unless they care? And that's our officers where I work. And I'm proud of proud of what I do and I'm proud of them as well. I believe that you're a man of faith. And you've said that faith doesn't drive the policing, but it drives who you are. Absolutely. There's this passage that talks about where there is no hope, the people perish. I like to say that what you and your fellow officers do is you provide that hope. I can't fix all the problems. But there right. is hope that the problems can be fixed. If I don't believe that right. the problems can be fixed, then there's no incentive for me to live or do anything else. There's no incentive to come forward. There's no incentive to try and get clean. There's none of that. 
But I have to believe that there's the possibility. And that's what I think that police do, especially you and your partners in that area, is you provide that hope that people need. Let me tell you, and I love what you said there. When things were safe, people were coming forward. We had people coming forward in broad daylight reporting crime to us, helping us solve murders. And my phone was the busiest phone in the city of Los Angeles. Like I would go on one day off and come back and I had 40 messages. That doesn't phase me. That's a good thing because what does that say? The community, this community that has been marginalized for so long has begun to trust the police. So now that our hands have been tied through horrible laws, horrible legislation, the defund movement, politicians turning their back on us, activists, uh, the, the, the inmates running the asylum right now as it relates to policy, uh, guess what? My phone probably, I could be off for four days and I'll have one message and that's from a person who believes the president is breaking into a window right now, right? The same person every day. So I went to a community meeting where everybody asked me to come. And I, went, I said, guys, you guys are making all these complaints, but my phone's not ringing, why? says, Dion, I'm going to tell you, we know how much you care, but we also know because of the revolving door, there's not much you can do. I saw you arrest that guy who stabbed the girl on the corner. He got out two weeks. I saw that lady who got run over by a car, but the guy got out, you know, the next day. I saw that. That's because of our broken system. And now the system is really, truly broken. So now because of that, you have citizens who are losing faith that the justice, and rightfully so, even law enforcement officers are losing faith, that the justice system can help them. But what I always said was they won't hear us all, whether it's the community or the cops to serve them, until it happens at their front door. And I don't know if you guys read or heard uh, Nancy Pelosi's house got broken into and her husband. First of all, I pray he's okay. I hope the person that did it is brought to justice and caught. But I hope they now understand, now that it's at their front door, the importance of keeping people safe. Because a lot of these individuals who make these laws and back there and support these laws, they're not living in Skid Row. They're not living in Nickerson Gardens or, or Jordan Downs. They're not living in these places. They're not living in Compton or Watts. They're living in these high places and they, they feel self-righteous, you know, that they're going along with a narrative, a false narrative, you know. They pat themselves on the back thinking they're saving the black community or saving people of color when they've actually made it worse. Well, now it's at your front door. Now it's at your front door. So I hope that maybe this will trigger a, a change in a lot of these irresponsible laws and that have been passed, like Prop 4757, and now no cash bail, which is insane. It's completely insane. Look, and they all say they're doing it in the name of racism and trying to keep people from targeting black and brown. Nobody's targeting anything. College students, listen to me. Because I know I'm not going to get a chance to get into campus, so I'm going to say it now. <laughs> I took about 3,000 college students on a tour of Skid Row. And prior to that, I gave an oral presentation. And I always try to appeal. I, I'm not political. I hate politics. I can't stand it and what it does to every good thing. It destroys everything. So I, I try to come as an apolitical as I can. And this one college student challenged me, why do you guys only arrest black people? So on the spot, I pulled up a map of my division in the 4.5 miles of territory. My division is not just Skid Row. Skid Row is just the most polarizing issue. But we also have Chinatown. We have the fashion district. We have the towers there. West Coast symbol of America's economic might and power. We have the artist loft on the west side. And right there in the middle is Skid Row. Small tight 50 block radius. So I pulled up this map and I blew it up and it was our crime stats for the month. And on the map, no crime in Chinatown, a few crimes in the financial district, handful of thefts, maybe some grand theft property uh, in the Santee Alley down in the south end, uh, what, a few car break-ins on the east side, but right in the center of this white map, there were so many dots that they couldn't see the whites of the map. So I pulled up the most combative college student I could find and said, hey, sir, come over here. No, Mr. Wolf, come over here now. 
I asked him what his last name. I said, um, Johnson. Okay, Cap, you're Captain Johnson of the Los Angeles Police Department, okay? And I'm a sexier, chocolatier version of uh, Chief Beck, right? You know, he's a sexy guy, but you know, I'm Chief Beck for the day, right? <laughs> and I said, now, we're at Comstat. I'm going to hold you accountable for the resources I want to give you to curb the crime that's happening in your area. On this map, I want you to point. I'm going to give you 50 officers. Where are you going to put those resources? Because right here in the middle of this box right here, I'm giving you a clue, sir. <laughs> There's assault, rapes, kidnappings, murders, thefts, grand theft autos, everything. Sir, where would you put those resources? And he pointed at the middle of the map. I was like, congratulations. So then I changed roles. Now it's like, now I'm from the Los Angeles Times. I'm a beat reporter with the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Captain Johnson, I got a few questions for you. You know, 80% of the people you arrested in this little center right here are African-American. Are you engaged in systemic racism? I put the microphone right to your face. And he goes, uh, no, no, I'm not a racist at all. Are you sure about that? Because 80% of the people you arrested are black, sir. Are you a racist? No, no, he got all defensive. I said, calm down, buddy. I'm not done with you yet. Whoop, whoop. I was a journalist from another paper that criticized from Newsweek. And I said, okay, hey, Captain Johnson, I got a question for you. 65% of the people that you arrested struggle with some form of mental illness. Why are you criminalizing the mentally ill? They use these buzzwords, right? Criminalizing the mentally ill. And it was like, I'm not. I said, why did you put those officers there? Well, because Skid Row accounted for 45 to 50% of all the crime in the division. Give them a hand. And then I looked to the kids. I said, these are the same ridiculous questions we have to get asked every time we try to make Skid Row our places like it's safe. It has nothing to do with the color of their skin. It has everything to do with the level of violence in the community. And listen, I want everybody to listen up. We know that the majority of people in places like Skid Row, Southeast, Newton, and all these places like we know the majority of those people, whether they're black, white, Hispanic, gay, we know they're good people. But we also know there's a negative exception that does a whole lot of damage more than they do in the Palisades and Bel Air. And that's why we're there. And if we're not there, people die. And that's what we're seeing right now. And we all need to wake up and stop demonizing law enforcement. My profession is not a racist profession at all. Uh, we go by data not by skin color. And you got to remember this. Disparity doesn't equal bias in everything. Fairness doesn't mean equal in every case. Equal attention. You know, I, I mean, fair, yeah. fair attention, trying to stop the violence, where the violence is. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that yeah. may not be equal attention on the part of the police. But but you were talking to college students there for just a second. But I got to I got to throw something out to our brothers and sisters, because we often in this profession become cynical. We become jaded and it's to our own detriment. We often do things, you know, coffee with a cop and all that kind of stuff because we want to humanize a badge. And that that's kind of what we want to do here on the podcast. But we have got to make sure we're humanizing the, the people that we serve. You know, the book of the Outward Mindset by the Arbinger Institute, where we talk about seeing people as people, not as objects. Because when we see them as right. people, our approach is so incredibly different different than if we see them as objects. And you talked about it earlier, right. when we see them as just that, it makes us less effective. And I guess right. that perhaps that, that's one of those things that struck me the most about following you on LinkedIn and reading up on the stuff you do is that you seem to get that more than most. We're serving people and some of those people are in bad, bad places, but they're still people. I want to tell one story that a lot of people don't know, and maybe my cop buddies will be mad at me if I say this, but on this day, a parolee became my hero. 
Okay, get mad at me if you want to. I don't care. This, this isn't the first time I pissed off, pissed off Kyle, right? I'll never forget, through the grace of God, housed 150 people in 10 years in Skid Row and using services inside of Skid Row and outside of Skid Row. I did that on my own. It wasn't a department program. And everybody knew in Skid Row that if you needed a leg up on housing, you'd go to Joseph at the time. 2,000 people at the streets, but only 150 people came to Why? Because the other 2,000 weren't ready, right? So I remember I'm walking down the street and there was this parolee that was just giving me the middle finger every day, me mugging me like he wanted to kill me. I was like, boy, dude, I didn't do it, bro. I was like, come on. <laughs> One day, uh, about a week later, I see him sitting behind the Union Rescue Mission with his head in his hands like this. And I walk up, I said, brother, there's no sitting behind the mission wall. Are you okay? And he looked up at me and there's dry tears in his eyes. And his eyes are red. And I was like, wow. I said, bro, are you all right? I can help get you in the mission. He said, you know what? I, I can't do the mission. I can't, you know, the homies are right outside. They'll, they'll come get me. I want some housing. I heard that you're the man. Someone told me that you're the man who helped me get housing. I said, well, I can't guarantee anything. I'll call my friend Denise. We'll see if we can get you in. So I called my friend. She said, I got one room available. Send this man right now. And I was like, dude, God must be smiling on you today. Get your stuff. Get up. Go get your tetanus shots. All this stuff. We're going to get you housed right now. He stands up. And behind me, I feel someone hitting me with a cane on my foot. And I looked behind me and it was an elderly 75 year old man. He says, did you just give that man housing? I can't stay on the street anymore. I can't do it. He's blind. And I'm like, oh, my heart broke. I said, bro, I, I can't help you. I just helped this young man. I said, maybe if you come see me tomorrow, I'll see what I can do somewhere else. And the parolee grabbed me by the arm and he said, officer, let him have my space. And I was like, are you sure, bro? Because sometimes, you know, my mindset was some criminal, some of the most selfish human beings you could ever see, right? Based on what I've seen. But on that day, the parolee gave up his spot and that man became my hero. And I don't know what became of that man, that young man. I prayed for him every day since, since that meeting. And I didn't see him again after that. But there's a capacity for decency anywhere. But like you said, you have to be that light in a dark place. See, all that time he was MFing me and calling me Uncle Tom and all this stuff in his head, somebody from Skid Row Help said, hey, that officer could probably help you. That officer could probably help you. If you want to change your life, that officer might be able to help you change. And he took a chance. So the capacity for good is there. You just have to be available and you have to have resources. And at the time I had resources. Now I have nothing because of this whole crazy mindset of the police can't be involved in helping people. Guys, please stop listening to this extreme rhetoric. It's not helping. What kind of sense does that make? Why wouldn't you want to work with someone like me when I can tell you and point you to where the most vulnerable are? I'll give you one example of that. 2014, I had seen enough. There were so many mentally ill people getting stabbed, shot, jumping in front of city buses to where I pinned an article. You can look it up. I called it Skid Row, a uh, mental health state of emergency. And of course, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm from a unified school district. My teacher told me, if you put your name on a paper, we'll give you a C. And I said, yeah, this is great. You know, <laughs> so to this day, I struggle with uh, dangling part of supposed and antecedents. But on this article, I made sure the commas are in the right place. Capital, everything. It was just Man, I was like, damn, this is good. I can say so myself. <laughs> Send it through, and it's just a little rag paper in downtown LA. The thing went viral. It ended up on Reddit, and oh, it sent the whole city in a buzz. We had mental health workers who wanted me on a hanging from a from a tree. <laughs> they wanted me gone. It was that I pissed off a lot of people. So I guess there was a meeting between them and one of my superiors, and some mental health clinicians that Joseph shouldn't be saying that thing, those things about us saying that we're ineffective or that we, we need to come out of our cubicles and help people. And uh, one of the mental health clinicians says, no, Joseph is absolutely right. 
From that, the city councilmen got involved and we created something called Operation Healthy Streets. And what they did was they brought in mental health caseworkers, brought in social services, adult protective services, DCTS. All these organizations came together in a little triage section of Skid Row. And about 29 of them walked the streets. And they wanted to do it without the police at first because the police are scary, which was like, what are you guys doing? These people love me better than they love you, right? But I saved that. The first two days they were out without the police, they were only able to get two people into shelter. I was so upset that I got two of my partners, two other dedicated officers to Skid Row. We joined that movement and we said, we're going to Bogart. We're going with you. One day we got 17 people into services because we, the fire department, we know where these people are. We know where the most vulnerable are. You don't have to ask these people their story. We'll tell you their story. And it actually works. So what we need to do is get back to that synergetic form and stop. Once again, no more vilification of cops, firefighters, and let's all work together because we want the same things you do. We want the same things you do, but until that changes, we're going to always be the tip of the spear. And it's not because we're, excuse my friends, Adam Henry's, and you know what that means. <laughs> it, it, it's just because that's how the system set it up. But we want to be a part of the solution. We want to be at the table. As we're wrapping things up here, I would describe you, somebody, I've already des- uh, described you as an angel, light in the darkness, but you have your own angel, your own light in the darkness. And, and that's your incredibly beautiful and incredibly gracious wife. All the good stuff. And buddy, you've done some fantastic stuff. That stuff ain't getting done if you ain't got the support at the house. And your wife wife is on the J-O-B. Just throwing it out there. She really is. Your wife recently, she started something. And I wanted to, I wanted you to be able to, uh, a chance here to tell our listeners what it is she started. My wife quit her job working with the city, which almost gave me a heart attack. (laughs) 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 And said, I want to start a chicken truck business. I know for years I was telling her, babe, you're a chicken. You can go into restaurants with your chicken. Well, this time she took me seriously. I'm like, no, what are you doing? (laughs) So she went out and got a food truck and she now sells chicken wings. We call ourselves comfort wings. Our slogan is everyone deserves a little comfort. And man, she sells the best chicken wings on the planet. Trust me. That's why I can't leave her 26 years. You know, it's just every time I want to leave, she puts a chicken wing in my mouth and I end up. Oh, you're right. But I'm telling you many different flavors. Let me tell you, she has, she is a maestro. Uh, Her base chicken, just a fried chicken by itself. It's just the most savory thing you'll ever taste. But she added garlic, parmesan, lemon pepper, uh, hot wings, Alfredo. Ooh. I don't know. I know you're going like, Alfredo on a chicken wing? <laughs> Trey Magnifique, right? And she puts this together. And I thought in February when she started, oh, it's going to take about two or three months for it to kick in. Man, she has been bombarded in the most wonderful way with people coming from all over the county to try our wings wherever we pop up. So like I said, if you guys ever want somebody to, at a big event, give my wife a call at uh, Comfort Wings. Uh, you can hit us up on Instagram or Facebook, Comfort Wings with a Z. And I'm telling you, it'll be the best chicken wings you'll ever taste and gourmet fries you'll ever taste. Proud of One her. of the things we're going to do is, is we're going to put links in our show notes on our website, to, uh, the articles we've talked about. Uh, we're also going to put links to Comfort Wings. So if people do want to get in touch with your wife, by the way, that, that is a good looking truck too. Just throwing it out there. It's oh, man. That's a beautiful truck. If somebody's listening and they say, you know what? I think this guy's onto something. 
I'd like to talk to him more. What's the best way for someone to get in touch with you so that maybe they can start trying to take what you've done and transplant it to another city? What's the best way of getting a hold of you? Well, I do consulting. You can hit me up at info at DionJoseph.org or go to my website at www.DionJoseph.org. That's D-E-O-N, Joseph.org, all smushed together. And I would love to come speak at your college campus, your police agency, your city council. You give me two hours of your time, I'll change your life. That's my side gig. I have a speaking business. And I'm telling you, all the cities that didn't listen to me, they're paying for it right now. That's a lot of cities <laughs> you know, paying that price right now, brother. I mean, oh, man, Austin, Texas. I was there. I was there. And they wouldn't listen because they allowed the DSAs to kind of take over. But give me a call. I would love to share if you have a church group, whether you want me to motivate you or just tell you the truth about uh, how, to, uh, how to properly end homelessness and how to help our mentally ill from a boots on the ground level. Give me a call. You won't be disappointed. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. I'm serious. I've been following you for a while. I think you're doing fantastic, fantastic work. When I listen to the number of years that you got on the job, I get a little bit worried because we all have an expiration date when it comes to the law enforcement career. But thank you for what you do, what you continue to do. Truly are an inspiration to me, and I hope that you're an inspiration to our listeners. But thank you for taking time today to come and talk to us. Thank you, guys. God bless you guys, and take care. And to all my law enforcement officers, keep your head up. I know it's tough. Don't quit pendulum swinging hang in there just a reminder if you guys would like to find out more about officer Dion joseph or if you want to follow him along on his social media pages we'll have links to his website and all those social media pages on our websites where you can also find past episodes along with links to podcast providers and a whole lot more that's at uh, between the lines at virtualacademy.com and if you're listening today and you have a story that you'd like to share with us we would like to hear from you. You can email us with all the details at between the lines at virtualacademy.com. One final thing, we've noticed quite a few new followers on all of our social media pages and some new subscribers to the podcast, but we want to thank you for supporting what we do here at Between the Lines with Virtual Academy.